0: Our second lesson for today will serve as the basis for our sermon. It comes from Acts chapter 10. Then Peter began to speak. And now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Most of you know that I grew up in Wisconsin, like many of you, and a good Wisconsinite is good at making the best of winter, right? We like to embrace it. We have a, a, a brother here who likes to go camping in the middle of winter. If you don't know who he is, he's got the, the plaid, uh, green and yellow. You could good, good discussion for after church today. Adam, why do you like to go camping when it's zero degrees outside? I like to ice fish. Some of you like to ski. That's pretty common for Wisconsinites, right? We embrace the seasons. We embrace the cold. If you're going to live in it, you might as well learn to enjoy it, right? But I call crazy the people who say that they wouldn't take a trip to the beach if it was presented to them in the middle of a Wisconsin winter. If you could go to Florida or you could go to uh, the the southern shores of Texas, some warm beach, who wouldn't like a, a trip to a nice warm climate this time of year? I know I do. The text that we're looking at today is a fun one because it always comes on this first Sunday in Epiphany, a time when it's usually cold in the Midwest and we get to take a trip to the beach because that's where this text is set. I'm going to take a few minutes to walk you through portions of Acts chapter 10. If you'd like to open up a Bible in your pew or or pull it up on your phone, we're going to look at quite a, a bit of Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 begins in Caesarea, Israel. It's still there today. If you were to go in Google Maps and type in Caesarea, Israel, it would take you to a beachfront community on the west and only coast of Israel, kind of in the northern part of Israel. A beautiful place. And there we find this centurion, a man named Cornelius. Now, the centurion Cornelius was a Roman officer in the military And you know the word century in English means a hundred, right? A century is a hundred years. So a centurion comes from the same Latin word that means one hundred. He was in charge of at least one hundred soldiers, oftentimes more than a hundred. So this man is not Jewish. He's a Gentile commander in the army. And we're told at the beginning of chapter 10 that he and all his family were devout and God-fearing, He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, what is it, Lord? He asked. Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So Joppa, another seaside community, about 12-hour walk south of Caesarea. So good days, day and a half journey, and it would be a nice walk, right? Can you imagine if your commanding officer came to you as one of his soldiers and Two servants and said, all right, I want the three of you to, to walk down the coast to Joppa and go find this man named Peter. It's worst place is to take a stroll, I suppose. Twelve hours right down the beach. Again, if you're a visual person, you can go into Google Maps and you can go Caesarea to Tel Aviv walking directions. And it's got that little feature where you could stick the little yellow squiggly guy on the path and you could see it the whole way down. You could take a look at what it would have looked like for yourself. You could walk right down the beach from Caesarea, 12 and a half hours down to Joppa. Beautiful place, beautiful beaches, palm trees. So down the coast goes two servants and a soldier. And while they're on their way, Simon Peter, who is, again, picture it in your mind, on the roof of a beachfront home. Doesn't that sound nice? He's on the roof of a beachfront home, waiting to eat. He's very hungry. The meal's being prepared downstairs. You can imagine, you could smell the food being cooked. And he takes a nap on the roof of the beachfront home. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened in something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And we're told that happened three times. Now, remember, Peter's the disciple who denied Jesus three times when he was on trial. Peter's the disciple whom Jesus asked, do you love me? Not once, not twice, but three times after he rose from the dead. This is the same disciple that Jesus told to feed his sheep not once, not twice, but three times after his head dropped because the three times do you love me reminded him that he denied Jesus. And we can't say exactly why God, in his infinite wisdom, chose to repeat this three times, but he wants Peter to get the message. So Peter sees this thing happen three times, the sheet coming down, the food. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Don't call anything impure, unclean, what the Lord has made clean. And right when that's over, the Holy Spirit says to him, there's three men who have come to you. Go down and meet them. And those three men sent by Cornelius arrive at the house right there. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day they set out. Full day of walking, probably about eight hours or so. The day after that, probably four more hours of walking, they arrive. Take a listen to what happens when they all arrive at the house of Cornelius. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. May I ask why you sent me? It's interesting that Peter understood from the vision about food. Remember the Jewish people had all those clean and unclean laws about what they could eat and couldn't eat. And while the vision was telling Peter, yeah, those laws are gone. They've served their purposes. You can eat these things now. It wasn't just about food. It was about people too. Peter realizes that People I once thought were impure, because of who they were, Jesus has come to make clean. He understood this was not just about food, but about people, too. And Cornelius tells the story about how the angel came and told him to send for Peter. And now you're here, so tell us what the angel wanted you to tell us. And that's where our text begins. Then Peter began to speak. It's interesting that the way Luke records this, he says, Peter then opened his mouth. It's not very common to have it phrased that way. There's all sorts of narrative in the scriptures where it's, then Jesus said, or then Paul said, And it's just the word for said. But here, Peter opened his mouth. Physically, the picture is of his mouth opening. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. And this is really cool. This realization, this epiphany, this aha moment. It's a word for grasping. So you know the phrase in English, really starting to wrap my mind around it it's got this picture of holding on grasping something that's kind of a neat picture in and of itself but it gets even cooler at the end of that verse so i now grasp how true it is that god is not a face grasper that's what it literally says I now realize, I now grasp how true it is that God does not grab onto faces. Now, what could possibly be meant by that? This translation and many others use a favoritism kind of concept. But here's the idea Peter is starting to realize and starting to understand, not just intellectually, but the practical implications of what it means that God does not look at a face and say, Yep, here's a good one. And then here's a bad one. Oh, this one smells clean. Turn the nose up at this one. Dirty, filthy, stinky, rotten. It's not how God functions. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. He doesn't look at a person and say, yep, you look right, you look wrong. Yep, you're clean, yep, you're filthy. It's not how God works. He doesn't show favoritism amongst people at at all. Now, we know from Scripture that Peter had an intellectual understanding before this that Jesus wasn't just for his disciples. Jesus wasn't just for the Israelites. Jesus was for all nations. Peter understood that. It's not that he's grasping for the first time, oh, wow, Jesus is actually for the whole world. No, that's not it. He understood that, at least intellectually, but here he's finally starting to wrap his mind around, finally starting to grasp what the implications of this reality mean for the New Testament church. What it means when God is not a face grasper. I'm looking around a room of people that I intellectually know to be Christians. I'm not aware of anyone here today who is definitely not a Christian who's hearing the word of God for the first time. Maybe somebody from home is. Don't know. But I'm talking to people who at least intellectually know who Jesus is and at least intellectually know what Jesus means, who intellectually know that Jesus is our Savior, that he's come to defeat the powers of sin, death, and hell, And yet I'm looking at a room full of people who, just like me, are very good at being face grabbers. We have this tendency to to look at people and to make determinations based on what we see. I'm not just talking about physical attributes. We're very good at saying, here's a good one, and here's a bad one. This one smells good. And that one stinks. We're very good at showing favoritism to those who appeal to us and separating ourselves from those who appear or maybe even smell beneath us. And what Peter's realizing is that God doesn't work this way at all. And it has a tremendous impact on the church and how people in the church, because remember the church is not a building, it's the people who make up the church. This realization, this thing that Peter's grasping is life-altering for the existence of the Christian church. He says to the centurion and all who have gathered there, What you know about Jesus, what happened in the baptism account that we heard today, what the psalm writer was talking about, did you catch that, was about Jesus? The psalm writer was talking about Jesus. The promise in the Old Testament lesson, they all point to Jesus, the one who would be anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, power over sin, death, and the devil, power over hell and its forces, that little remnant of sin in us is what leads us to be different from God. To be a face grabber. To say this one's good and that one's bad. This one smells good to me, that one smells bad to me. It's sin that leads us to, to elevate ourselves over others. But Jesus, the anointed one, came to crush this power. Jesus, the anointed one, is far superior the powers of sin, death, and hell. Jesus has come to do what? To heal those who are, here it says, under the power of, literally, those who are oppressed by the devil. We, We see that in our lives. We see the oppression of sin, how it wants to rule. It's trying to grab hold of us. It's trying to grasp us and drag us down to hell. Satan would want nothing more. But here Jesus has crushed the powers of hell. He has come to heal those of us once oppressed by the devil, but no longer. What's happening here is Peter's beginning to grasp the implications of these things. And so what happens when a Christian, a person like you, a person like me, begins to grasp, begins to wrap our minds around How true it is that God is not a face grabber. What happens? Well, two things I want you to remember. The first one is peace. Peace for you and peace for me. Peace that nothing else could provide. The truth that God is not a a face grabber, not a respecter of persons, doesn't show favoritism, means you can have true peace. Because not a day goes by when you and I don't have guilt. Guilt over something. Something we thought, something we said, something we did. Not a day goes by that you and I don't suffer from guilt and you know it. And this means God doesn't look at us and turn up his nose. God does not look at you. He does not look at me and say, oh, that one stinks. That one looks terrible. No. We have peace Because God doesn't function that way. He sent His Son, the Anointed One, to rescue us. And so the first thing is peace for you and peace for me. But the second ramification of beginning to wrap your mind around the fact that God does not grab onto faces is that you and I stop grabbing onto faces. We no longer look down on people because of who they are, or how they think, or how they talk. Those members of the family who make life challenging for us. We no longer foolishly elevate ourselves over them. Nope, just see that brother, that sister, has a precious soul for whom Jesus died. We don't grab onto the face. When you're at work, And there's that person who just continually is beating you down with ideologies that you wholeheartedly reject and you disdain that person for it. Well, you used to disdain that person for it. Because you remember that God is not a face grabber. He doesn't say, here's a good one and here's a bad one. He sees a, a person who is oppressed by the devil and so do you. You see someone who is under the oppression of the powers of hell, and you have a Savior who was anointed with power greater than the powers of hell. And so you open your mouth, just like Peter opened his mouth. You don't have a call like I do to publicly proclaim the Word of God to the assembly. But as a Christian, when you realize, when you grasp how true it is that God is not a face grasper, a face grabber, when you have the peace of forgiveness that only the crucified and risen Jesus can provide, you have all you need to open your mouth to, physically. To open your mouth and to speak these truths that apparently the centurion his family already knew Maybe the person that God has sent into your life doesn't yet know. You might not have a story about you in the book of Acts how one day God sent an angel to you saying, hey, go, go get this person to, to come and, and talk to you. But God sends people into your life all the time. Maybe they were born into your family. Maybe you were born into their family. Maybe you were born their sibling, or maybe you were brought into a workplace, or maybe you moved into a neighborhood, but God is constantly putting people around you who don't have this peace, who don't know what the centurion and his family came to know through the words of Peter, who don't know what you know, who don't know what what I know. As you begin to grasp these things, this beautiful truth that God is not a face grabber. May it give you peace. May it teach you to no longer look at people with favoritism. May it lead you to open your mouth and share this good news of who Jesus, the anointed one, is. Amen.